This is the Abraham's Wallet podcast. Abraham's Wallet spans the gap between the austerity of obedience to God and the prosperity rising from faithfulness. Run your home and your dough like a biblical boss. Hey guys, and welcome back to the Abraham's Wallet podcast. My name's Mark, and this week I'm going to get the next installment in of our Build Wealth Like an Ant series that we've been talking about. What are the key components if your desire is to pile up an arsenal of resources which you can use to, to fund your own family's vision and have an impact in the kingdom? Good plan, but you need to actually take some steps to get there. Before I get there, I want to tell you about next week's podcast, which I'm really already quite excited about. Stephen and I occasionally get mail, usually electronic mail. Once in a while, we get physical mail from you folks. And we realized we've never we've never brought any of that onto the podcast. So recording this Friday, launching next Wednesday, the first ever Abraham's Wallet mailbag. And if you hear this, uh, it's not too late to get in on the, the goodness there. So if you have something awesome to, to say to us or a question that you would like us to discuss on the air, please send it in to mark at abrahamswallet.com and you can potentially be featured right here on the podcast. If you don't get it in in time or if we don't choose your mail, that's okay. There will be if this works out well, there will be future episodes of the mailbag. So without further ado, let's get into part three of the Build Wealth Like an Ant series. Here we go. Lately, I've been cranking away at a series that will teach you to build wealth like an ant. And one of the key pieces to the wealth building journey for those of you who are first in a multi-generational line of asset accumulators, and I see you out there, you first generation dreamers, I'm so proud of you guys, starting at the dirt, fiddling with blueprints, and sharing your vision as it unfurls in your heart. We bless you, you studs. But if you're first, you're going to likely be going through the step of going out and getting a job. You may have that job for two years or two decades, but nearly every one of you will need a job in order to obtain adequate skills and or money to take the next step toward the construction of your Abrahamic outpost. Nobody could reasonably accuse us here at Abraham's Wallet of being anti-job. And yet, I spent from 2005 until 2019 working for other people across the finance and technology industries. And I have noticed, both in my own experience and in watching my friends across all sorts of jobs, that we men are uniquely susceptible to the temptation of dramatically over-investing in our jobs. One ditch is undervaluing the job poo-pooing it like it's the exclusive terrain of fools, but the other ditch is overvaluing the job as if, as if it's your hope and your savior. That overinvestment can take the form of time, emotions, energies, and what's more, employers are very aware of this, and they will exploit it at every opportunity. They will use you so very gladly. So here's how it works. An owner creates a company that can turn a profit. He hires people against that aim, Not because he's super generous, but because he believes he can increase his profits by broadening his employee base. 
The employer then sets up a very specific system for evaluating the value that each employee can add to the company. This is very closely tied to how much richer you can make the owner. Said owner then rewards employees with status, money, and praise as he hits or exceeds the levels of performance necessary to make himself richer. The richer you make the owners, the better the kibble that comes out of the slot. The next step is employee X, that would be you, agrees to this system, not realizing what it'll do to his psyche. Most people enter the workforce broken and needy, and that's just a fact. Next step, employee X wakes up in a few years surprised at the realization that he now goes to job Y, which was created to benefit owner Z. I hope you're not getting confused with our alphabet soup here. He goes there to get all sorts of deep needs filled. Affirmation, challenge, camaraderie, esteem, etc. And this realization feels like step six, which is just doo-doo. Now, there's nothing actually wrong with the owner-employee deal, so long as the employee is aware of the terms of the deal and capable of recognizing the pitfalls. They are myriad, but they all stem from step five, which is the one where you start going to your job for all those deep needs being fulfilled. Fact is, the rules for winning, which we guys naturally like, and amen and hallelujah for that instinct in us, but the, the rules for winning in the workaday world are often clearer than those for establishing a home-based outpost, and they're certainly more immediately obvious. But ultimately, it feels hollow because, step seven in our little pattern up there, the company can call you a trusted partner, or whatever it is that they want to call you, but your company doesn't love you. You're not in covenant with them. If you regularly fall below the bar set in part two of the the step-by-step we went through, we'll just see how that goes. They're just aware that if they can motivate you by hook or crook to do more and more for them, then they will get richer and richer. So how do they do this? Well, lately I've run into more and more talk from companies who want to pretend that this deal isn't real. And I'm just going to take a pause on the blog for a second and tell you the deal is really important to the rest of this post. And the deal is that you, employee, are trading your skills and time in exchange for the company providing you with money and a safe workplace and a few other things. But there's a clear deal, okay? That's what I mean when I say the deal. And lately, like I said, I've run into more and more companies who want to pretend there is no deal. And this, frankly, gents, steams me up. They will use language of family, and that makes my skin crawl, or even religion, to convince employees to sacrifice everything at the altar of profits, which they will disguise with language about vision, culture, inclusivity, or whatever they think will adequately mask their true intentions. Some companies, I'm convinced, will do this unintentionally because they have drunk their own Kool-Aid at the highest levels. They really believe that this company doesn't exist to make profits, but to, say, improve life. My two cents... It's, a gr- it's great if a company says it's their goal to improve life or whatever. That's better than gurgle the innocent blood of those crushed beneath our wheels, I suppose. But companies aren't invented for those purposes. Charities are. Companies exist to turn a profit. And if the profit isn't turned, just watch the supposed altruism of the shareholders dry up along with it. And again, this isn't sinister. I'm not here to rail against capitalism. It's just the way that companies work, so let's be honest about it. 
Now, speaking of Kool-Aid, I had an interaction a few weeks ago. Nowadays, it's been a few months. But I was on LinkedIn, and there's a successful CEO of a startup here in Utah that, frankly, kind of got me concerned when I started reading what he was writing. This fella, he's prolific in his LinkedIn posts, and he created an interesting conversation around the topic of religion in the workplace. The back and forth was riveting and interesting, but what really got me was his admission of his goals for how his employees would view his company. So I'm going to read you what he wrote, and I want you to watch closely. But he said that he had pretty much eradicated religion from his work. So I asked, what do you mean by that? And here's what he said. He said, Mark Parrott, what it means is that you could work for me for years in a professional setting and be left guessing what my thoughts are on God and what I do on a Sunday. This should be standard at diverse workspaces, in my opinion. Ask away, and I'm happy to share with you. But beyond that, I'm at work to worship growth, innovation, company culture, etc. I don't want any side groups using in language that makes my minority team members feel out. So for my part, I think it's rare to find an executive so willing to own up to the tactics that the CEO praises in his response. He wants to convince employees to worship at the altar of company culture and goals. When I expressed some shock at this in my response, i.e., do you really think it's a good idea to worship company culture? He went on, and here's what he said next. When someone is at my office, they better be all in on what we are trying to do. I've worked at Disney, and I see how much they get in effort from their teams because of what they are doing. They made a religion, and customers and employees are the worshipers. I want that. Save your weekend worship for the weekend. So suffice it to say, I don't find this kind of talk benign. It is refreshingly honest, so pour one out for that kind of candor. But are we all seeing the bottom line so explicitly drawn here? And while I doubt that many of you will get it so clearly from the horse's mouth at your own places of work, please, please be aware that many employers today, nearly all who have no other master, are out to leverage the same tactics. There isn't even room for the aforementioned deal, the owner-employee deal, in this type of thinking because the company forms itself into your god. Is anyone else a little nervous about this setup? Of course, we all are, right, guys? Right? I wonder how many of us have bowed up to an employer who crossed the lines of reason and decorum like this. Side note, if you have, please write us. We would love to hear your story, and we might talk about it on next week's awesome mailbag episode. Clayton Christensen is one such man, though. He was a leader in business and academic worlds, and I once listened to him tell a story that stuck with me, so I'm going to tell it to you now. Early in his career, he was working as a junior consultant in one of those ritzy consulting firms filled with Harvard MBAs, and Christensen's boss announced that he would be needed in the office on a Saturday to wrap up a big project. Now, somehow that 27-year-old guilelessly looked at his employer and said, I'm sorry, but I've reserved Saturday as a day that I spend with my family. You can imagine his boss was more than a little annoyed and left in a huff, but he did come back a few hours later. Okay, Clayton, we've moved heaven and earth here, but we got the whole team to agree to finish up on Sunday instead of Saturday, so we'll see you here then. This time, Clayton responded. 
Oh, I'm sorry about that, but Sunday is a day I've reserved for God, so I won't be on the in the office on Sunday either. Believe it or not, this didn't result in Christensen being dismissed and was step one in a long, distinguished career. He was able to, without any ire, be keenly aware of his relationship with his employer and the fact that they would take as much as he would give. I'm sure that in the moment described here, he wondered if he would be canned. But in hearing him tell the story, I don't think it would have mattered. By drawing clear lines, he actually reaffirms the deal and removes any hint that he's looking for more or less than the deal from his employer. Clayton understood some very important things. He understood what he was offering the company, 40 hours a week, give or take, of hard work, what the company would be giving him, a paycheck, what level of respect the company deserved, that of an authority appointed by God to be the avenue of provision for his family, and lastly, what respect the company did not deserve, the right to determine the terms of Clayton's life and what his every waking hour would be occupied doing. With that understanding, he could look at every opportunity or challenge square in the face and call it out for what it was. They could call him friend, family, blah, 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 but they weren't getting Clayton's family nor God days. That wasn't in the deal. Did you know that this deal is described in the Bible? It is. Romans 4.4 says, Now to a laborer, his wages are not credited as a favor or a gift, but as an obligation, something owed to him. That's the deal, guys. A laborer expects to be paid the wages that the owner or employer owes him. Those paid wages don't make the employer good or kind or generous. They're just fair. That means the laborer doesn't owe any extra measure of allegiance or gratitude, and that groveling is inappropriate and frankly uncomely. It is what it is, and Clayton, bless him, understood that. So how then is an Abrahamic chap like yourself to treat his job? Should he do the bare minimum required to take home a paycheck? Well, no. Colossians 3 is unequivocal in removing that option from the table. It says this, Workers, in everything, obey your masters on earth, not only with external service as those who merely please people, but with sincerity of heart because of your fear of the Lord. Whatever your task may be, put in your very best effort as something done for the Lord and not for men, knowing with all certainty that it is from the Lord, not from men, that you will receive your greatest reward. Big high five and thank you to the Bible for helping us understand how to handle jobs and bosses. Thank you, Lord, for telling us such practical truths. Now we can know that we're to obey our masters or bosses in everything, that the nature of our relationship with them would allow. We're to give our best work in all that we do, whether it's by edging our yard, which nobody else will care about, or turning in a presentation that hundreds will see. We're not to do the above for political reasons or to be seen or liked. We're to do them as worship and service to the chief shepherd. Next, earthly bosses may give us a token or two for enriching them, but our heavenly master will give us rewards that last forever. So don't let your love of the job be the determining factor in how hard you work, how well you do your job, or where you go looking for kudos. Hey, if the boss man affirms us, great, and we obviously want to please him with our work. But even our wanting to please the boss man is because the master sees all that we do, even seeing our motives and attitudes. What's more, when you frame your current job, however wonderful or mind-numbing it may be, 
as a gift from God aimed at equipping you to provide both now and in the future, it's pretty easy to get behind the idea of working as unto the Lord. So take every opportunity to produce excellent work, regardless of your assignments, and look for chances to operate above your pay grade whenever possible. Remember, the deal isn't just about your paycheck. You're working a job both for the immediate compensation and the long-term development that you'll garner from whatever position you find yourself in. If you only take the checks and don't develop personally, you're shortchanging yourself on half of what you're owed in the deal. By keeping your priorities straight, and being constantly on the lookout for the ever-increasing tendency of the work world to step into the place of your family, and even your God, you'll be free to work, earn, and develop with a clear conscience, and to the great benefit of your own outpost. So go, get a great job, just don't worship it. Cool? And for Abraham's Wallet, I'm Mark Parrott, looking forward to talking with Stephen here next week, and... I will see you guys then. Adios.